Welcome to Series 3 of Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and every week I'm chatting to artistic directors Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, looking back at four decades of their productions all across the world. Together, we'll take a look at what these plays have to tell us about the messy business of being human. Our play today is Shakespeare's Hamlet, and here's a quick synopsis before we dive in. Hamlet, Prince of Denmark, returns home from university for the funeral of his father. His mother, Gertrude, has married his uncle, Claudius, who's become the new king. The ghost of Hamlet's father appears to him, revealing that he was murdered by Claudius and demanding that his son avenges him. Hamlet pretends to be mad, and Gertrude and Claudius summon his university friends, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, to work out the reason for Hamlet's odd behaviour. Claudius also persuades Hamlet's girlfriend, Ophelia, to spy on him. Hamlet realises that he's being watched and cruelly rejects Ophelia. A troupe of travelling actors has also appeared at the castle, and Hamlet makes them perform a play he has written which echoes his father's murder. At the performance, Claudius loses his temper, which Hamlet takes as proof of his guilt. Hamlet confronts his mother in her bedroom. As they argue, he hears someone moving behind the curtain and stabs them, assuming it's Claudius. It turns out to be Polonius, Ophelia's father. Claudius banishes Hamlet to England with a secret letter to the King of England asking him to kill Hamlet when he gets there. Ophelia goes mad with grief and drowns in a river. Her brother Laertes sets out to kill Hamlet in revenge. Hamlet, meanwhile, never reaches England. Pirates attack his ship en route and force him to return to Denmark. As he arrives back at the castle, he finds gravediggers digging Ophelia's grave, just as her funeral arrives. In this moment, he discovers that she has died. Laertes challenges Hamlet to a duel. Claudius makes a plot with Laertes to poison both the sword and a cup of wine to make absolutely sure Hamlet dies. It all goes wrong when Gertrude accidentally drinks the poisoned cup. Laertes and Hamlet are both wounded by the poisoned sword, and as Hamlet dies, he kills Claudius too. And now over to Declan and Nick. So, hello, Declan and Nick. Hello, Lucy. Hello, Lucy. So today we are talking about one of the biggest Shakespeare plays in the repertoire, Hamlet. It's enormous and it's, and it's early. I think it's 1599 and he's still learning to write these big tragedies. It's the first of them. He comes a form of Beth Othello Lear. But, you know, it's not a bad learning piece that's changed the way human beings think about themselves. I mean, it is absolutely extraordinary. It's, a, it's an overwhelming play. Well, the exciting thing about talking about this play with you is, once again, it's one you've come across multiple times in your career. You did a staged production of it in the UK in 1990. You've also done it as a ballet with the Bolshoi with no text at all. How was it to work in a format where you couldn't use any of the words, given that this is one of the most word-heavy plays in Shakespeare? It's fantastic. (laughs) because, you know, our whole lives we're sort of tied to words. And it's like, I absolutely love words. But also not having to use words is also fantastic. You think much more about the movement of the body. You think much more about the plastique and about 
how the actors express things and how the actors interrelate. I find that incredibly important. So let's talk about this word plastique, which is a Russian word yes. for describing acting. Could you talk more about that word? Well, it's just that Russians are very conscious about how you move, you know. The actors on the whole tend to be very much in their bodies and understand perfectly that text is something that sits on the back of how we move. And that's the discipline that, that has moulded me and Nick. So working in ballet is very obvious to me and Nick in a way. And that's what I enjoyed so much about all of these conversations is that you talk about plays as bodies negotiating space. Yes. And that text is just another muscle, another limb yes. with which you negotiate space. Yes. It's not, we're not coming to a recital. Text is secondary to human experience. It's not central to it. I mean, I think the words the human beings say to each other are very important. But, you know, if ever you have a difficulty with somebody, you have to look at what people are doing rather than what they're saying. And if what somebody does contradicts what they say, it's what they do that matters more. Just speaking from the point of view of common sense, if, if action and text contradict, you follow action. What mean, that means less pretentiously is if somebody says one thing and does another thing, you follow what they do, not what they say. So Hamlet speaks a huge amount in this play. He's famous. Yes. It's maybe the biggest script a single actor has to speak in any Shakespeare play. And you always say, nobody speaks unless they are compelled to. I've heard you say that you think Hamlet speaks at such length and does everything he does because there's a particular thing he's afraid of. What's that? Well, it's an incredibly boring word that's very important, which is, I think, non-existence. One always thinks of Hamlet as being the longest part. I don't think it is. I think Richard III and Iago have more words to say. But Hamlet's the one who talks all the time. He always seems to be in the middle of the stage saying, I'm here, I'm here. I know a story of an actor that's always told as a funny story. The director went to the show one night and in a crowd scene on stage suddenly saw that this actor had stood on a table. And when he asked, why do you stand on a table? He replied in a little voice, because I thought no one could see me. But I sort of... In a way, I understand that act. I, so I feel for that idea that you are invisible. And I think that the reason that Hamlet demands so much of our attention is that he feels invisible. He is Mr. Nobody. He's to the side in that first scene. He's like, he's like the odd fat son that no one even thinks might possibly be a contender for the kingship. And his first line, um, a little more than kin and less than kind, I think is very embarrassing because it's like a, a, a joke, a sarky joke that somebody makes that they think will get a laugh and it, it misses its mark. It, it doesn't get quite the laugh it's supposed to get. And I think he's very frightened that he's nobody. And I think he's continually like that actor standing on the table saying, frightened that nobody can see him. And he goes on talking because he, he wants to believe that he exists. I think the best way to think of non-existence is, is, like, is to think about the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark when Harrison Ford pulls up a lever and um, to get the treasure, whatever it is, and this enormous boulder comes hurtling after him. and He runs like hell in front of this boulder after him. That's what I think non-existence is like. So non-existence, it's a bit like this panicked feeling that we've got to keep running, got to keep going to earn our place Yes. existence or it's going to squash us and obliterate us i think so yes it's it's we, we've invented an expression to describe the highest possible stakes we say oh this is a life and death situation it's a life and death situation but i think we're quite strange as animals that there is something worse than dying and that is 
this thing for which there is no word. Um, this um, thing that you call well, non-existence as a kind of stand. Non-existence is a useless expression, but it's the, it's the only one I can, you know, I'd much rather say Harrison Ford's big ball. You know, <laughs> is, yeah, I, th- I think we know that there is something worse than death. We know that there's something worse than death because people do kill themselves. People kill themselves tragically, sadly, and for all sorts of different reasons. Um, and one can't possibly generalize about why people kill themselves, apart from one thing. And that's that we can say that it, they do it to avoid something that is worse than dying. To that poor person, at that moment, they feel death is a, is a, is a better choice. And there seems to me to be in Hamlet a fear of, of being invisible. And that it's behind the line to be or not to be. The line to be or not to be appears to refer to suicide. But I think it also is about this terror of being invisible. One of the ways that this non-existence thing is different from death is that non-existence, it doesn't just wipe out your present. It doesn't just wipe out your future as death does. It sort of somehow wipes out your past as well. It undoes you. Now, all of this seems maybe very abstruse and very much, you know, God, you've got to read lots of Wittgenstein things to understand what this is all about. But I don't think so. I think that when you look into the eyes of young people who are desperate to make it in the world, I think if you look very closely at them with some love in your heart, that you'll see that it's not just something that they want, but there's an absolute dread of not having it. And failure is, is too weak a word for it. It's like they'll be obliterated if they don't get this thing. Now, of course, some people have this more than other people. But on the whole, the plays I direct are about people who have this an awful lot. And this is a key, not just Hamlet, it's a key to Macbeth and Othello. But they're very frightened of not existing, and they use that verb, be, in all sorts of different ways. We we talked about it last week in Twelfth Night, when Orsino talks about Olivia's unregardance yes, of him. The sure fact that he's almost unwitnessed by her. Exactly. And that makes him into nothing, and it tortures him that he's not granted the right to exist by by her attention. Exactly. Many people would rather be hated than not seen. Mm. And the Russian indeed for um, I hate you is nivizu, which etymologically is um, I don't see you. It's the fear of the thing that makes us keep doing, keep doing the things that we're doing. It's, it's one of the things that's made us, if you like, the master species that God bless us might destroy our own planet. We'd rather do extraordinary things, sometimes maybe even terrible things, just in order to make sure that we actually exist. Because... It's as if we don't fully believe that we do. But this is, even at tiny children, the politics at school, the terror of being not one of the in crowd or not the popular person at school or not chosen for the team or being neglected by your parents, not being seen through, being a bit invisible. These things fill us when we're small with unspeakable dread. I think it's really hard because covering what we've been saying about the fact that he he feels himself invisible, that he facts, he feels himself ignored and looked over and done down. He's kind of sees himself as a non-entity. But inevitably, in any company, I think, you're going to cast the charismatic, very capable, in fact, brilliant actor, because it's a very difficult part. So conjoining those two things is really hard, I think. And that actually makes it quite a difficult play to understand. So Hamlet really needs to be a bit of a drip. Who yeah, he's would... fat and scant of breath. He's, he's the one that is ignored. But that, do you ever see that? 
you cast a film star in the part, and of course, his, all the audience is going to be riveted on him, so he's getting maximum attention. How do you dramatically do it so that he's the character who isn't, is ignored? It's very difficult. I think it's virtually impossible. And that's, I mean, I think that's one of the impossibilities in it because you've really got to feel that he's somebody who's ignored and who feels he doesn't exist. I mean, the most terrible thing happens in that court scene when he's still mourning and his mother says, but why, why seems it so particular to thee? And I think why seems it so particular to thee is one of the most violent lines in Shakespeare because it, it passes unremarked because it's, it's quite passive-aggressive. But my God! The hurt. It's a, it's a basic understanding when somebody is bereaved that they're given a kind of dignity and status to say to somebody, a member of your own family, what's so special about you at that moment is a moment of a sort of total obliteration of somebody, but done with a sort of smile and a sort of tidying away and a sort of pull yourself together. So he doesn't even feel seen or granted the right to existence by his own mother, who says, why are you so special? What you can't play nowadays is that the function of a prince in a court at that time and, and earlier, of course, and really the function of an aristocrat, their job was to be a warrior. And that kind of hangs over in our royal family now because they all dress up in the military uniforms. You know, you understand now why a prince might read a book in those days, you wouldn't understand why a prince would read a book. Princes didn't read books. They were out doing sword fighting and jousting and doing military things. A prince going to university is bizarre in those days. Bizarre. And this is something that we talked about last week, which is that actually a lot of characters are not in the plays that they wish that they were in. I mean, he's been put in the wrong play. It's the wrong space. He doesn't fit. He doesn't want to be there. He doesn't have the language to negotiate that space. Yes, I think the most important thing for too, though, for Hamlet is he just doesn't measure up to either of his parents' expectations. I mean, the, the father is a nightmare. I mean, really, to tell your child um, to revenge is, is a terrible thing. Nic- Nicholas I of Russia, I believe his dying words to his son were, hang on to everything, which must be the, sort of the second worst thing you can say to a child before you die. But the worst thing you can say is uh, revenge. Um, that in fact you should be saying be free have your own life do exactly what you want to do but no that he's absolutely tied to that and we feel very much in the play that Hamlet just doesn't live up to his parents expectations so not only does he have this dread of non-existence not only does he feel like he's in the wrong play he feels like he doesn't even fit in the family I mean he's he's so much the sore thumb in every single scene I think it's the most fascinating play but I don't know it's the most likable play or the warmest play. I think it's about a, um, a lack of empathy, that Gertrude seems to have very little empathy. The ghost has little empathy. And then he learns to have no empathy because of the way he talks about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. But when we have no empathy for other people, it's not so much because we're selfish, it's because we don't have much empathy for ourselves either. It's because our relationship with ourselves is, is corrupt. And I think that's a, a very important thing that happens as the play goes on. Poor Gertrude, she has that very, I find, very creepy speech um, when she reports Ophelia's death, starting, there is a willow grows a slant of brook. But it's as if she's sort of trying to communicate to a brother the fact that his sister's dead, and she doesn't know how to do it because she's so inexpert at 
being in touch with her feelings. And so she uses this extraordinary nature imagery. And, and then very inappropriately, she says, you know, she talks about the purple flowers, which our liberal shepherds give a grosser name. So presumably the, the flowers are called something like purple dicks. And, but she mentions that in the middle of the speech very inappropriately, as if she's kind of tone deaf. But because somebody's tone deaf doesn't mean they have no feelings. It means that she's kind of like speaking a foreign language when she has to speak about feelings like that. And you feel that she's never allowed herself to have any feelings. But then at the end, she says, which time she's chanted snatches of old tunes as one incapable of her own distress. That idea of being incapable of your own distress runs all the way through the play. And, you know, the, the golden commandment is love your neighbour as yourself. But that's very sophisticated because it means you have to love yourself. If you're incapable of your own distress, you're lost in the suicide of Ophelia. Gertrude sees something of herself. It's like she's been incapable of her own distress because her husband's died. I mean, she's in this sort of terrible situation. She's had to cut off so many feelings, Gertrude, to do this. And she's brought up her son like that. And she's reaping the rewards now. In the, in the closet scene, she reaps the rewards of having brought up her son like that, who turns on her in that vicious way, which confuses so many parents. But it's like he's been shamed by being ignored. Because if you see through a child, if a child becomes invisible, the child becomes shamed. Because he shames her in the closet scene, that makes me think, He's been shamed. And to use modern words, you, you could say you know, she's very coerced by the patriarchy, but she's very much like a, a military wife who will uh, urge herself and people around her to have a stiff upper lip and to put best foot forward and onward and upward and pull yourself together. Um, and she expects to pull herself together, but she can't quite pull herself together because she's a human being. She she starts to become acquainted with her own natural empathy, I think, as the play goes on. And it's an incredibly sad thing at the heart of this extraordinary play. It also seems that, you know, this text in which people speak at length <laughs> seems to be an example of us speaking at length because we are struggling to put words to things, not because we are good at describing them. Gertrude speaks at length about flowers because you can't talk about feelings. Yes. And Hamlet speaks forever and ever and ever to the audience because he can't find the words. It, I always find the last line such a relief and so painful when Hamlet says, the rest is silence. Yeah. Because it's almost like he goes, thank goodness I don't have to try anymore. Yes, the ghost gives Hamlet a character which is a revenge hero. He gives him a super objective, which is to bring about vengeance. And he gives him an action, which is to kill Claudius. And off he goes. He's got his character, he's got his super objective, he's got his action, and he doesn't know what to do with it. It just doesn't fit him at all. He's sort of... He's, it's like he's been... The, the ghost is like some director that subjected him to some awful acting class, and it just doesn't work, and he can't access anything. It makes him feel stupid that he can't actually do it. And people say, look, it's very simple. You're a revenge hero. Yeah, I'm a revenge hero. Yeah, your, your action, your super objective is vengeance. Yeah, I've got that. And your action is to kill Claudius. Got that. What could be simpler? Yeah. And he can't do it. so fascinating watching the ballet because it seems to me nick that your talent in design is about activating human bodies as as the key part of your image and putting it on a ballet stage 
seem to supercharge that. Could you describe your design for the Bolshoi production of Hamlet? Well, the design was pretty much, I'm afraid, another empty space. So, I mean, the problem which we worked on over a long time was to shoehorn this massive play and make it a coherent piece within the music that we'd chosen, which was two Shostakovich symphonies, the 5th and 15th, I think. We chose, over a long period of time, sort of key moments of, of the play, and then the task was to express them within, essentially, an empty space. But there was one massive thing that happened in this space at the rear of the stage, which was that when people died or were obliterated, the back wall rolled up to reveal this enormous light box that was pouring with smoke. And as they walked into it, in this moment of death or obliteration, they started as a stark silhouette. And the closer they got to the light, the more they got swallowed by the light and the smoke, like an overexposed photograph. And then this darkness would drop down again. So in this empty space, you had this one massively dramatic device that was used. Well, fading out in white light somehow cinematically implies death. And that's exactly what that did. I mean, people walked off into a blinding white light, into into death in cinematic terms. That's very um, readable. Nick, could you tell me about your favourite moment in staging the Hamlet ballet. The fight over Ophelia's body in the graveyard was very um, dramatic and successful, I think. And she was flung around, as you can imagine a ballet dancer could be. It was really grotesque. Hamlet saw her body in the coffin for the first time and hurled her out of the coffin and was like embracing her and kissing her and swinging this corpse around as the whole court tried to wrestle them apart. And it was horrifying to watch but also amazing because you had her dressed in white and everyone was in black so you could see this kind of pale little rag doll of a body being manhandled around the stage in this violent image of grief it made me feel sick (laughs) and was very beautiful at the same time what about you Declan what was your favorite moment I don't know there were rhythmic moments of the music when the whole stage was full and then suddenly everybody would go and Hamlet would be alone and we tried to dramatize that sense of loneliness and we had a wonderful dancer Dennis Savin who was our, our first Hamlet he's a, he's a wonderful dancer Dennis was wonderful working with him I loved bringing Yorick to life too that was wonderful Yorick became a main character and would, would appeared throughout the whole thing because Yorick's one of the most human characters in all of Hamlet, except he's dead. So tell us more about how you put Yorick on stage. We just did a dance, a dance, Denis Medvedev. We started the play with um, Ophelia and Hamlet as children, and Yorick entertaining them as a, as a children's entertainer at a huge party. And so we felt very much that relationship that Yorick had with them. And so when the skull comes out, you know, we were able to bring Yorick back in the gravedigger sequence. And it was so painful, because you do feel at that point that Yorick, this dead jester who... Hamlet loved as a child mm. was somebody that made Hamlet feel seen. Yes. One of the only people that makes Hamlet feel he seen. He bore him on his back. Yeah. And that he's dead and gone. And that's why Yorick matters so much to Hamlet. Yes. It's one of the few kind of tactile mentions in the whole play. He bore me on his back a thousand times. It's like they've never touched. Mm. And Yorick did. He's good, isn't he, Shakespeare? 
Yes, he's very good. <laughs> well, thank you very much both for a grand tour of Hamlet. And next week, we are moving from Shakespeare to Chekhov with the Three Sisters. Have a lovely week. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Not True But Useful. As always, if you want to look at pictures of Declan and Nick's productions of Hamlet, just follow the link in the podcast notes. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. We've got lots of great episodes coming up in the next few weeks. The music in this episode was composed by Paddy Kaneen for Cheek by Jell's production of The Winter's Tale. Join us next week when we explore Chekhov. Until then, stay well. Stay well.